first reading is from John 13, verses 1 to 5. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. The second reading is from John 19, verses 25 to 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Well, good morning, Elevation. It's good to be with you again in this virtual context. For those of you who might be new to our community, my name is Brandon. I'm the lead pastor at Elevation. So I don't know what the summer is going to look like. I don't think any of us really do. But typically speaking, sometime around the middle of July, my mother-in-law rents a cottage at Savile Beach. And every year we go up to this cottage and things are kind of the same. We have the same kind of traditions we do. But every once in a while, things are a little different. And a few years ago, something different happened. Uh, we were walking along the street that the cottage is on and I saw what looked like a garage sale. So I went up to the end of the laneway leading up to the cottage and sure enough, there were table after table uh, set up for a garage sale. And to my joy and surprise, they were tables full of books. When I got an even closer look, I started recognizing actually some of the titles that I had on my shelves, some of the titles that I had on a wish list that I wanted to read and I started getting excited. What I ended up discovering was that this was the library of a former Jesuit priest. So it was like, I felt like Indiana Jones. I just discovered this incredible thing and it was such an exciting time. One of the books that I took from that, unfortunately, as it turned out, there was a lot of rain the night before and so many of the books were water damaged. So I only got about a dozen out of it. But one of the books that I took with me was called Christ in Our Crises. And I've taken this title from that book uh, to make our series this month. It was written by the former Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the head of the church in England, Donald Coggan. He writes in the foreword, I want to talk about the relationship of our Lord to our crises. After all, it is he alone who can make meaning out of the mess in which we often find ourselves and help us to handle the problems that often seem too much for us. This book has been calling out to me from my bookshelf for a few years now, but the timing seems especially right to talk about it now. When Jesus was arrested and executed, his disciples' entire world came crashing down. In the days that followed, they were filled with death, with fears of, of death, loss, doubt, and disillusionment. These are all the things that they had to navigate together. And their question very well may have been, where is Jesus now that everything is falling apart around us? The disciples' crises were common human crises that each one of us either has experienced or will experience at some point in our lives. So where was he? Well, he was present with them in the midst of the rubble, meeting them at their lowest points, calling them to walk with him into a brighter future. And just as Christ spoke to his first followers' crises, he continues to speak to ours. A number of years ago, before I started a path down 
the road to being a pastor, I studied business at Laurier. And I remember in one of our first year labs, we had this exercise and we did this exercise a number of times. Essentially, it went like this. We were given a case study, so like a half, three quarter page paper where a scenario was described for us. And it was just a simple question at the bottom. What is the problem? So we had to analyze this and come up with the problem. And at first I was like, well, this is obvious. The problem is this. But as we went around the classroom, I started realizing that different people were seeing different problems. And we did this exercise to learn that sometimes you got to keep asking questions to find out what is really the problem at hand here. As of last count, 383,000 people have died globally from COVID-19. But at the end of the day, even COVID-19 isn't the ultimate problem. The problem is that our bodies are vulnerable to our attack. The problem is that life is so incredibly fragile. The problem at the end of the day is death. In this case, addressing the root of the problem won't be very helpful. We can take steps to stem the tide of a spreading virus, but we can't do anything to stem the tide of death. Or can we? In 1979, Alvin Silverstein wrote a book called Conquest of Death, and he made this outlandish statement, we may be the last generation to die. Now that seems crazy, but flash forward a couple of decades and Google's chief futurist Ray Kurzweil suggested that humans could start living forever by the year 2029. That's this decade, folks. So while some people are busy trying to find a way to solve the problem of death, the rest of us are pressed to find a way to accept its inevitability, to accept it not as something to be avoided, but as a natural part of life's journey. As the Catholic author Carlo Credo writes, I think about death. I try to see it as life, as wood needed for the fire, as a field in which a treasure is hidden, as a book to be opened, as seed which has to flower, as a secret which I have to know, as a crossing which I have to make. I love this passage, but perhaps the most honest word in this poetic passage is the word try. I try to think about death this way. Death may be inevitable, but that doesn't make it an easy thing to accept. Two years ago, Melissa and I had an opportunity to travel out to Victoria, beautiful city of Victoria, BC. I was attending a conference and we tacked on a couple of tourist days at the front end of our time there and one of the things that we did together was we went whale watching. We were out there on that boat for a long time before we saw any orcas surface um, but when they did it was incredible. Now something we didn't know at the time was that one of the orcas swimming in those waters was a pregnant mother who was gonna, about to give birth and two months later she did. The calf born to her unfortunately only lived for half an hour and what happened next made headlines around the world. She began hoisting the lifeless body of her calf up to the top of her water, kind of nudging it with, his, with her nose. And she swam around for an entire day this way. She swam around for the second day this way and actually carried his body with the help of some of the other people in her circle there for 17 full days. People from around the world are watching this in awe. And I'm not really surprised. There's something about this expression of grief over the loss of a loved one that resonates with us, isn't there? Eugene Peterson once wrote, strangely, virtually every death, even of the very old, feels like an intrusion and more or less surprises us. Tears and lament give witness to our basic sense that this is wrong and that we don't like it one bit. Death provides the fundamental datum that something isn't working the way it was intended, accompanying by the feeling that we have every right to expect something other and better. Now, death can be the most natural of things, but it can also be 
the most unnatural of things, especially when it arrives prematurely and especially when it arrives violently. On May 25th, a Minneapolis police officer knelt on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Floyd's final words, I can't breathe, were evidence of his physical fragility. The human body needs oxygen, and if the supply is cut off, then the body cannot survive. But those final words, I can't breathe, also spoke to and continue to speak to the condition of the rest of his life. As the protests in Minneapolis and so many other cities, including our own, reveal, avoiding death, while very important, is really only part of the problem. Even if George Floyd was the last black man who would ever be killed by a police officer, there would still be people marching in the streets. Because staying alive isn't enough. Even if Ray Kurzweil's prediction of humans living forever comes to pass, we still have to ask the question, what kind of life will they be living? Will all of those lives matter? During this pandemic, we've been asked to do whatever we can to protect our own fragile bodies and the fragile bodies of others. But over the past couple of weeks, our eyes have been opened to the fact that COVID-19 is not the only virus on the loose. There's a collective call for justice rising up across the US and Canada, and it's important for us to pay attention, to give our attention away to this moment. I was reading an article last week that cited the Rodney King's riots taking place in 1992. I did the quick math, that's 28 years ago. 28 years of the same thing happening same conversation. The plain truth is I cannot imagine living in a world where people believe my life was worth less than theirs, that my death would somehow be acceptable or even preferred. I can't imagine that, but I'm trying to imagine. Over the past three years, I've been intentionally reading and listening, slowly growing in my awareness of the level of systemic injustice that has led to events like the killing of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and so many others before them. And while I still have a long, long way to go myself, I want to invite our Elevation community into a new season of listening and learning. We've done it before, we've listened and learned, and it's been a good thing for us. And I want us to do it again. Now, there's gonna be a cost to it. You know, I was sitting down on the couch beside Melissa a couple weeks ago and she was doing some shoe shopping and she was flipping through these ads for shoes online and, and I saw one and something caught my eye. I said, wait, 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 go back to that one for a second. So she goes back to the previous ad and I said, look at the price. And there, the normal price, the regular price of the shoe was listed at $100. The sale price in red numbers, $99.99. I'm like, why are they even mentioning that? Like, that's, that's not a deal at all. No, it's going to cost us something if we want to listen and learn well. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us mental energy, emotional energy. It's going to cost us finances. It's going to cost us some of the things that matter to us, our priorities, some of the things that we're used to. But how amazing would it be if our community could one day make the words of racial justice leader Austin Channing Brown fully and truly our own? We are a collective of change agents. Bored by easy answers, we wrestle with hard questions. We understand history can speak prophetically. We push ourselves purposefully. We read voraciously, listen intentionally. We act in solidarity. Often called troublemakers, we interrupt the status quo. We work to uproot white supremacy. We hold power accountable, believing in the possibility of change. Working to dismantle unjust systems, 
We drag injustice into the light. We are reconcilers. We make peace. We promote truth and love above politeness and civility. We make noise because our lives depend on it. We believe in reconciliation. We recognize justice comes first. We know God is working in the world. We celebrate, we laugh, we honor one another, we practice joy, making room for grief, we cultivate hope. We believe in redemption and resurrection. We are confident in love's victory. In the words of the novelist E.M. Forster, death destroys a man, but the idea of death saves him. God, may this current wave of awareness on the other side of a tragic death save us all from our ignorance, our prejudice, our privilege, and from the virus of racial injustice that destroys the lives of some, but infects all of our souls. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, it's taken me a while to get around to this morning's reading, but we're here, and there's some good stuff in it. John 13 begins this way. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Now, keep in mind that Jesus was around 33 years old. So as far as life was concerned, he had plenty left to live. But for Jesus, far from being the thing to be avoided at all costs, death was an integral and inevitable part of his mission. This is what he said in the previous chapter, John 12, verse 23 and 27. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Donald Coggan, whose book I referenced earlier, writes, He knew that he came from God and that he was going to God. That knowledge set him free from fear. John 13, 3 continues, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now, what would you or I do if we had everything under our power? Well, if we knew that death was imminent, we'd probably skip town. We'd do everything we could to get out of that situation. But knowing all of this, what did Jesus do? He got down and he washed his disciples' feet. Where is Christ when I'm faced with the crisis of death? He is right there with you kneeling at your feet, showing you love and preparing you for the difficult path ahead. Again from Donald Coggan, how wonderful it would be if we could begin to see that death need not be dreaded, but can indeed be welcomed, for this is the authentic Christian note. Now our second reading comes from John 19, where we find Jesus no longer hours away from leaving the world, but moments away. From the time Cain took his brother Abel out into the field to kill him, humans have used their power to snuff out the lives of those they didn't want around, Jesus included. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one in whom all things were created, the one is who, who is before all things and through whom all things hold together, the one in whom God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell. Jesus was arrested mocked, spat on, and eventually nailed to a cross. John 19, 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
There's nothing easy about watching someone you love die. And even if the person themselves is ready to make that crossing, many times the onlookers, you and I, are not. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Even as his own breath waned, Jesus' attention was on meeting the needs of those he knew would grieve his death the most. Where is Christ when I'm faced with the crisis of death? He's right there with you, suffering alongside you and making provision for your well-being on the other side. Jesus' victory over death opened the door for him to be present with us when we face the crisis of death, whether it's those we love or in time the crisis of our own death. There's this great passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 14, where Paul is writing to the church and he's acknowledging the fact that we need to grieve. Grief is a normal part of life, but don't grieve like the rest of people who have no hope. We have hope. Christ is risen. We have reason to have hope beyond death. You see, we believe in life after death because of what God has already done in Jesus. It's the posture we adopt in light of the fact that Jesus' resurrection has shown us that life, that death does not get the final say. It's a promise that we too can rise again. This right here is the something other and better that Eugene Peterson was referring to. The something other and better that we can look forward to. Instead of causing us to despair of life or turn from God, death can remind us of the incredible value of life and the very real presence of Christ in the midst of it all. In the words of the poet Rainer Maria Rilke, death is our friend precisely because it brings us into absolute and passionate presence with all that is there, all that is natural, all that is love. Now Jesus tied death and passionate presence together when he shared his last supper with the disciples who would soon find themselves in the crisis of their lives. Later this morning, we're going to sh share in communion in our neighbors groups. If you're not part of a neighbors group on a regular basis, I'd encourage you to click the link in the comment section now if you'd like to join on the, at the end of our service. In our groups, we're going to share the elements of bread and wine or juice in the, from our own homes, but doing it collectively. The bread and, and the juice or wine, these simple symbols, the, the natural part of life that's tied to this death. Of Jesus. We'll ce celebrate this ceremony today in our neighbors groups and I'd also like to invite you to join us Wednesday night as you've already heard for our service of lament where we'll have an opportunity to grieve together, to mourn together, and to speak words of hope in the midst of it all. In the words of the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky, the darker the night, the brighter the stars, the deeper the grief, the closer is God. May we have the courage to look death in the eye accepting it as a natural consequence of being alive. May we rage against death when it's taken prematurely. And may we remember that Christ is with us in all situations, loving us, serving us, caring for us. I'm going to close this morning with the words uh, from a prayer of St. Patrick. And following this prayer, we'll have a song that will close our time together. At the end of that song, we can head off into our neighbors groups to discuss the morning's theme and share communion together. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, 
Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. As I rise, strength of God, go before, lift me up. As I wake, eyes of God, look upon my side. Your blood was 
Oh